to pray for the Lord to open our eyes to the text that we will be looking at this evening. Heavenly Father, the spirit that you have caused to be within us, that spirit is a spirit of light and understanding. It is a spirit that opens our eyes and our ears so that we might read and truly understand, that we might hear and truly believe. And he puts in us hearts that are ready to to accept uh, your word and to live accordingly. We pray that the Spirit would open our eyes this evening and shine the light of understanding upon the text of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We just sang a, a psalm that referred to an enemy. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? I have an enemy. I have enemies out there who are causing all kinds of mischief, all kinds of trouble, and they're looking at my downfall, and if I fall, if I am destroyed by their malice, they will rejoice, they will be glad, they will have celebrations, Lord, and that's just not right. But I have your promise, and I have your, I have faith in you, that you will do what is right, that you will bring me safely home, that you will shut the mouths of the enemy. In, in a way, that psalm is, is kind of one of the more, shall we say, gentle, imprecatory, imprecatory psalms. Uh, it, it is a psalm of complaint. Some, some psalms we could also classify as lamentations. And this, this kind of bridges that, spans that, that gap between a psalm of, levi, uh, of lamentation and an imprecatory psalm. Who are the enemies? Well, the enemies might come from many different backgrounds. They might be non-believers, but you know what? More often than not, David's enemies were fellow citizens in Israel. More often than not, David's enemies were, well, sometimes people of his own household. Sometimes, well, think of Absalom. It was his own son who started a rebellion against David and drove him out of the city David fleeing for his life. Sometimes it was Saul, the king, that sought to kill David on several occasions. I have a friend who is another OPC pastor. Certain men in his congregation brought accusations against him. They were false. They were trying to have him removed from the ministry. He asked me to be his counsel in the trial that was scheduled. In God's providence, the trial never took place. But you know, my friend and I actually read Psalm 13. In that case, the enemies were church members with malicious hearts who tried to destroy a man and destroy his ministry. Of the two men who brought charges against him, one is no longer, well, neither one of them are in the church any longer. 
and it and neither one of us my friend or or myself can say we were the ones responsible for that we weren't it was entirely god answering prayer and vindicating an innocent man and indeed at the last meeting of his presbytery when it all came together he was vindicated Sometimes the enemy is one of your own congregation. Turn with me to Psalm 109. There are psalms that are called imprecatory psalms, that a psalm where the psalmist, in a form of a prayer, calls on God to pour out his wrath, his judgment, his his retribution upon the wicked, upon an enemy, upon those who, who uh, seek to do evil. There's a question, of course, whether such psalms ought to be sung by New Testament believers. C.S. Lewis, who got many things right, wrote wonderful books and stories, but when he was wrong, he really was wrong, and he was wrong about this. He thought that the imprecatory psalms were a reflection of our human nature, but as Christians, we, are, we would be called to rise above that. And so he called these psalms sub-Christian, sub-Christian. I don't know about you, but that raises a question in my mind, then God, why did God inspire these psalms and have them put in, in the Bible? Not only in the Bible, but in the book that was to be sung and chanted by his people as they worshipped him in their homes, in their towns and cities, and in the temple, they were to sing from the book of Psalms, including these imprecatory psalms. And why is it then that Jesus never criticizes these psalms and say, now you don't, says, now if you love me, you don't have to sing these psalms anymore. After all, I am a God of love, right? No, they're there in the Bible for a reason. They're there because they do reflect an aspect of our existence that perhaps we are uncomfortable with, perhaps it, it doesn't make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside, but it is very, very real. The kingdom of God has enemies. Christians have enemies, and they are not your enemies just because they don't like you, Sometimes they are your enemies because you are a believer and they refuse to believe. And you have set your heart, like David, to follow the paths of righteousness, but they have set their heart on wickedness and rebellion. As we have read, there is a day of final judgment coming. We don't know when. We don't know exactly some of the details of it. But we do know that everyone, angels and men, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and either be rewarded or cast into outer darkness and eternal punishment. Psalm 109. It's a lengthier psalm, so we'll read it together. I'll, I'll read it and please follow along. Be not silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. 
They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat, may it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good to deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. When reading that, we realize that very often there are issues of life and death, and the enemies here sought to put this person to death through false accusations, through, through corruption. They delighted in wickedness. By the way, who do you ultimately think this psalm is about? Did you notice the line, may another take his office? That line is quoted in the book of Acts as the apostles were seeking a replacement for Judas. Judas betrayed Christ. Judas led wicked men to arrest Christ. He identified him as Jesus. 
and Christ was put to death. When the apostles meet in the early chapters of Acts to find a replacement for Judas, they quote from this psalm, which tells us that it does have, I won't say it's the only application, but it does have a specific application to the enemy of Christ. Didn't this psalm make you feel all nice and warm? But it's reality. And as, comfort, as uncomfortable as reality is, as uncomfortable as reality is, we still have to learn it and deal with it. The psalm, the imprecatory psalms, are rooted in the character of God. The, the nature of God defines reality. God's being, his decree, it defines reality, and we must come to terms with it, even the hard aspects of it. We all love to talk about the God of love, the God of grace, the God of mercy, all those positive aspects of God's being in his re that, that come to us in our relationship with God. But just as God is a God of love, he is also a God of retribution. Just as a God, he is a God of grace, he is a God of justice. Just as he is a God of mercy, he is a God of fierce wrath against wickedness. Let me read you another passage. Again, it's a lengthier passage. I said we were going to be comparing Scripture with Scripture this evening. It's a lengthy passage, but it does give us insight into this nature, this fuller understanding of the nature of God that is the definer of reality. And it's found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. We're going to pick up in verse 15, but Moses in this chapter talks about the future of Israel. He has laid before them, and God through Moses has laid before them the path, if you do what is right, you do, if you follow my, my precepts, you will be blessed. If you turn away from me and worship foreign gods and commit wickedness, you will be cursed. Pretty straightforward. The interesting thing is, Moses does not leave us in any doubt as to what, in fact, will happen. You will turn aside. You will worship other gods. You will commit yourselves to sin, and you will suffer God's judgments. But that's not the end of the story. As Moses also prophesies that there will be, a, there will be ultimate redemption. Even when you are scattered among the nations of the earth, Moses said, I will come to you, and I will bring you back. I will restore you. Well, there's a great lesson, gospel lesson in that, but here's a passage that 
opens up and, and delves a little deeper into this, what, what's going to happen to Israel, and what happens to the nations that take Israel captive, even though God uses those nations to, to punish the nation of Israel that has turned aside into idolatry and wickedness, that doesn't mean he's going to bless these other nations. Listen, Deuteronomy 32, we're picking up at verse 15. But Jeshurun, that's a, a name for Israel, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague with poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did this, for they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their later end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? And the Lord had given them up, for their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this land, uh, this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasures? Vengeance is mine, and recompense, for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Now, notice he's, that that middle section that we just read is is what God is saying about the nations that come in, and he uses those nations to discipline and punish Israel, who have forsaken him. But then there's a shift, and he says, but they might misunderstand. They might think that they've done this themselves. 
and get all puffed up about themselves. But no, they are, they are Sodom and Gomorrah. They are, their, their wine is poison. They're, they have their gods, their rock, but they're not like our rock. And they would have never been able to overtake Israel and conquer Israel had not I given Israel into their hand. But they don't understand this. And so now the Lord is changing his, his, his he, he has disciplined his people, but now he turns the fierceness of his vengeance against the nations, the very nations that he has used, because they are wicked. Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, O gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. See, there is the note here that God turns his fierce wrath then against the nations, lest they get puffed up and think that they have done this on their own. He judges them. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Isn't this another side of God that we don't often think about? It tells us a truth about God's being. We have a doctrine. We don't talk about it often, but it's the doctrine of the simplicity of God. God is not made up of different parts and passions. There's not a part of God that is love and a different part that is wrath. There's not a part of God that is mercy and another part that is justice. There is only one God, and in his being, he is unified. God is love. God is justice. God is holiness. God is truth. God is a fierce avenger of his own being and an avenger of his people. They are all united in the simplicity of God's unified nature. When we talk about a God of love, and the Bible says that God is a God, of, it, it, God is love. 
But he also, the Bible also says God is holiness. God is truth. God is, it is one God and it is one divine nature. Not different parts, not different passions. God doesn't have disagreements with himself. Well, my, my loving part says I should do this, but my wrathful part says I should do that. It's one nature, one simplicity, and a perfect unity in all aspects of his nature. This, uh, this is the reality of God that is behind the imprecatory psalms, that we call upon this God who loves his people and hates his enemies. Notice in this passage in Deuteronomy is where we get that famous statement, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. Paul quotes this in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 32. You'll find frequently in the imprecatory Psalms, Lord, avenge me against my enemies. This is simply a prayer that God would be God in the fullness of his nature, in his unified, simple nature. When the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the United Presbyterian, or the uh, United Reformed Churches were working on this joint project of the Psalter Hymnal with the intention, of course, to having all 150 psalms. And Psalter Hymnals are no new thing. We have had Psalter Hymnals going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and, well, thousands of years. There were even people in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church who objected. And I was at a general assembly just before this project was given its final green light, and there were several people in the assembly that raised uh, an objection that we should not go forward with this project. And what was their reason? Because we will be singing the imprecatory psalms. And as Christians, we should be seeking to save our enemies and not bring judgment on our enemies. Uh, it didn't succeed. But even, even in the OPC, where there, there were people who, who thought that there's something unchristian about these psalms, I would say there's something unusual or unfamiliar to us because we have not kept a balanced view of the reality of God in our minds. We have not kept a balanced view of the reality in the world either. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Israelites, in their captivity and their destruction at the hands of other nations, had no power to take vengeance. They had to wait for God. Paul, in his instruction in Romans, 
looks at it from a slightly different angle. And that is, very often when we seek to avenge ourselves, we only cause more trouble. We actually make things worse. And it is not up to us to do that. It is God who should be glorified. Just as he is glorified in the salvation of the righteous, uh, those who trust in him, he is also glorified in the destruction of the wicked, and he is the one who brings about both of them. Well, what about the New Testament? Let me read you something from the New Testament. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is an imprecatory song. Sung by martyrs, sung by those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. That's literally what a martyr is, one who, in bearing witness to the truth of the gospel, gives his life up for the sake of the gospel. And their song, their prayer, Sovereign Lord, how long, how long before you judge the world and avenge our blood. That's reality. Remember, I told you we'd look at a song of praise. And it's it's not so much a prayer for God to judge as it is a song of praise that God has judged. It comes in the same book, the book of Revelation, but later on in the book... Revelation 19, 1 through 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. All his servants are to praise him, as he has executed his judgments upon the great prostitute. Now, in the context, that's called Babylon, the mystery Babylon, the, the mother of harlots, the mother of prostitutes. And as you read, of course, the description of her, you read that she has corrupted the whole earth with her vile immorality, that she has persecuted the prophets, that she has slain those who, who were righteous, and that in her dwells every form of corruption and vile thing. And when she is destroyed, 
and the smoke of her burning goes up forever. Praises ring from heaven. Again, it's not an imprecatory prayer. It's an imprecatory praise. Ain't that turn your worldview upside down sometime? By the way, just as a side note, people wonder, well, what is bad? You know, what does it symbolize and everything? I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I can tell you this because of the way these there there are two women juxtaposed to each other at the end of the book of Revelation. One is Mystery Babylon, the mother of prostitutes, and the other is a bride descending from heaven, prepared for her bridegroom. Those two women are the anti- are antithesis. They are opposites. Whatever, whatever glory is in the New Jerusalem, which is a city, whatever glory is the antithesis of the vileness of Babylon. I'm not sure I can say, you know, with great uh, assurance exactly what these images and what these, these statements mean in the book of Revelation, but I can say, because of the way it's written, that we are to understand that Babylon is the antithesis of New Jerusalem. And they are both depicted as women, one a prostitute and one a pure bride. And, and you know, take, take away from that. Think, meditate on that. And by the way, I trust that everyone here tonight has their passport stamped for New Jerusalem. And that's where our home is. That's where we long to live. You live in Yukaipa, you live at Big Bear, live at Redlands. No, I'm going to live in New Jerusalem. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, as Jesus tells his disciples. One more passage. The fact that God does not bring vengeance on the wicked right away often causes us some some trouble. The saints under the altar, how long, Lord, how long? We're still waiting for vengeance and you to avenge our blood. How long? There was a man who wrote a psalm. His name was Asaph. Asaph wrote a psalm about the problems this caused him. According to the way things are supposed to be, the wicked are supposed to be judged. They're supposed to be promised. But as he looked around at me, he saw the wicked prospering. He saw the wicked living long, comfortable lives and with no trouble whatsoever. And he says in Psalm 73, this this caused me great consternation to the point where I almost lost my faith in God. It was a challenge to his faith. Why isn't God judging these wicked people? Why are they prospering? And and by the way, God's people are, we always seem to be a day late and a dollar short on everything. And, and, and where are you, Lord? Asaph gets to the point where he says, 
why have I bothered to keep myself pure? Why have I bothered to observe God's Word? Why have I bothered to persevere in faith and life? And then he has this turn. He says, if I had said this, if I had gone this far, if I had denied my faith, I would have betrayed the generation of God's people. And then I went to the temple, and I got my mind straightened out. When I wanted to worship God, then I understood their end. Their feet are on slippery rocks. And he says they, of course, will be judged. The wicked will be judged. It's just not right now, right immediately. But the day is coming when the wicked will be judged and the righteous be lifted up. And then he turns his eyes back to God. Whom do I have in heaven but you, Lord? Who do I have on earth but you? Who, who do I need beside you? So the lesson, of course, is don't get, don't get all wrapped up if you don't see justice being executed right away. Don't, don't let it disturb you and, and undermine your faith. But trust in the Lord. You, the Lord is your, is your inheritance. The Lord is your, is your rock. And he will, he will come and he will judge. He will set right the scales of justice and vindicate the faith of his people. And that's why there are imprecatory prayers at Psalms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we consider things that we often are uncomfortable with, but we acknowledge that they are part of your word. And they reflect a part of your nature, and we would not disregard this. It is a part of the truth we confess. So, Father, let us learn humbly as, as small children. Let us learn to appreciate all the sides of Scripture, all that Scripture teaches us. Let us come to appreciate you in the glory of your simplicity. You are a whole God, one being, one God, united in all your attributes. We praise you, God. You are not affected by time. You are not a God at war with yourself, having different parts and passions. You are a God who is eternal, a God who makes a promise and keeps his promise. For this we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen.